that there are so many developers I've seen who say, gee, if I'd only kept that first one, rather than buy and do a bigger one and do a bigger one and then go broke at the end. So I've basically learned that uh, for good return on my funds, on money invested, I'm buying the sort of property, building the sort of property that's going to be in continuous strong demand in the future, in good investment-grade locations. So I'm getting my investments at wholesale. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of the show. It's fantastic to have you with me. How's everything going with your projects? Ticking along? I am well. I've been busy doing some home renovations, and it's reminded me why I like doing new build property developments. Home renos always take longer and cost more than you think they will. Fortunately, the house is still functioning and we've been able to get by. On the developing front, our preparation for the tribunal hearing is gathering steam. We've been bringing on some expert witnesses to review our proposal and advise on what changes should be made to strengthen our scheme and bolster our case. It's only about two months until the hearing, so it's getting pretty close. Okay, on to today's guest. Michael Yardney is one of Australia's best-known property commentators and investment advisor. He's written eight books on property investing and wealth creation and publishes a lot of content about property investing. You can find out more about him at michaelyardney.com or metropole.com.au. Although Michael is well-known for property investment advice, it was through property developing that he took his wealth and business to the next level. And he's still an active developer today and provides a developing service for his clients. In this discussion, we talk about how Michael got into developing, what has changed in property over the decades, and what he has learnt along the way. I'm sure you will enjoy this discussion with Michael, and I started off by asking him what food he would eat until he was sick. Oh, that's really easy. Ice cream. If I had to be set aside on a desert island and only have one food for the next month, it would be ice cream. You're actually the first person to say ice cream, and now that I think about it, I'm surprised it hasn't come up before. <laughs> I didn't have to think about it. It just came out like that. <laughs> what, a particular flavour? Mmm. I'm actually not fussy about it, but I actually like magnums. But I'm not sure you're allowed to take lots of little, the, the caramel magnums with the chocolate on the outside. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure they don't allow that on that show, Survivor, you know, <laughs> stuck on the desert island. <laughs> Now, Michael, we're here today to talk about property developing. You're Mm -hmm. quite a well-known commentator in Australia and particularly in Melbourne, Uh, I guess more known for investment properties, but you've also done a lot of property developing. So we're here today to explore a bit more about that. So can you give us some background on you in general and property, but more specifically your developing activities? Sure. Well, I bought my first investment property in the uh, 1970s. I, I paid $18,000 and got $12 a week rent. I actually went halves with my parents. We took a 30-year mortgage. had no idea how I was going to pay it off. Uh, but it was the time of uh, Gough Whitlam coming into power and inflation was high and the property values went up and I bought another one. I made all the mistakes. The worst thing a beginner can do is get it right first time. You think you're smarter than you are. Uh, but the second property I bought in Bond Street, Caulfield, I knew I had to do a renovation. It had renovation development. So I started with renovations, which is, in fact, where I've seen a lot of big developers start. Uh, I remember painting it. 
no one told me I had to open the windows to let fresh air come through to ventilate it, so I actually made myself quite sick. Um, I tried to do things myself. I got involved in development in the 1980s, and it was more buying and selling because I thought I needed cash flow. And in my 30s then, I was very brave. I did some amazing developments, a couple of industrial subdivisions, warehouse developments, office building. I had some good business partners and some mentors who taught me what to do. That all came to a bit of a screeching halt in the early 90s in the recession we had to have. Fortunately, I survived that, but some people uh, didn't uh, that I knew well. Um, I got involved in development project management, helping other people with their developments in the late 1990s, and in 2000 set up a company called Metropole Projects. Over the years, we've probably done over a 1,000 development projects for clients. Currently, we've got 56 medium-density development projects on the go. And personally, I'm still personally currently involved in four medium-density developments that I'm keeping in the long term for myself. So still very actively involved in property development. And tell me why you're involved in property development. I have fun. Um, I enjoy the creative uh, process. I enjoy finding a solution to a, a, a potential problem that's there. And I actually take pride in some of the things we're doing. We in particular are involved in two municipalities in Melbourne, currently uh, the, the city of Glen Ira. Um, we did a lot in the city of Monash before, city of Bayside as well. And there's two or three suburbs where we've clearly changed the face of it if we've done 100 developments there. Uh, so I actually take some pride driving through and think, hey, that was one of ours. And given that you've got this broad overview of different types mm. of you know, property investment, is there something particularly special about property development that draws you to it? I think it's the fact that it's the highest and best use of your money if you do it right and do it for the right reason. Can you elaborate on that for us? Well, to me, property development is a great way of buying your assets cheaply, building your assets at wholesale. So while most property developers buy, develop and sell or buy, renovate and flip and sell, uh, to me, I don't sell. I used to, and I used to need it for my cash flow, but I've learned over the time that there are so many developers I've seen who say, gee, if I'd only kept that first one, rather than buy and do a bigger one and do a bigger one and then go broke at the end. So I've basically learned that uh, for good return on my funds, on money invested, and if I can hold on in the long term so I'd never start without the ability to do that, it doesn't matter where we are in the cycle. It doesn't matter what's going on in the market. I'm buying the sort of property, building the sort of property that's going to be in continuous strong demand in the future in good investment-grade locations. So I'm getting my investments at wholesale. And how have you managed to hold on to those properties? Because it's sort of like the holy grail for property development, <laughs> building the stock, being able to hold it, but then also being able to do other projects as well. Right. Well, the answer is today it's much easier now that I've got a substantial asset base. But it varies. I've learned over the years that property investment or development is really a game of finance with real estate thrown in the middle. So a hell of a lot of it has to do with having the right finance and having the right cash flow. That's particularly more salient <laughs> given where we are at the moment with lending mm. practices and clamp downs from banks. Mm. 
And you mentioned that you learnt some things from mentors that you had through the 80s. What were some of the things that you learnt from those people? Well, again, in the 80s, I was very brave. And looking back on it, very stupid. But probably didn't know what I didn't know. Um, I, I got involved in two industrial, sorry, two residential, one residential, one industrial subdivision project. Uh, the, one of them, I actually bought a farm with three partners, two who were very experienced developers, but they put up a bit of the money and a bit of the expertise. Uh, and we bought a property on a long settlement, uh, had never done it before, uh, got some engineers to design the roads, got some people to quote it, got somebody to sell off all the land off the plan, so to speak, to other speculative investors, developers. And we went to the bank and said, here's a 20-acre farm, here's a subdivision of 34 lots of industrial land, here's 34 contracts of sale, a fixed-price contract, there's a profit margin, would you lend it all to us? I don't know what would have happened if the market had changed while we were doing that, if we wouldn't have sold, if we, um, we didn't, we were brave uh, and, as I said, a little bit stupid, but uh, we actually, a booming market got us through. If I made those same mistakes today, I'd have gone broke very, very quickly. So I learned from one of my early mentors, who's still a very successful, very large uh, city developer, about the margins you require and the way you do it. I also learned from him a bit about the cycles, but I learned about it, unfortunately for him, the hard way. He'd already gone broke once when we got together. He went broke another time in the early 90s, and he's been broke since. He's a speculative developer, and having gotten through the early 90s when I saw a number of my business partners go bankrupt, it made me a much, much more cautious developer. Uh, I learned the importance of finance, of cash flow, and 20 years into my investment career, I finally learned the importance of cycles. Can you elaborate more on what you learned about cash flow and finance? That's, well, that's what got me through in the early 90s was we, owned, we had developed a lot of industrial properties and kept them and had started off with a 70% loan-to-value ratio in the early 90s. Um, good cash flow, positive cash flow. Interest rates went up to 17 18% and therefore yields, returns required on commercial properties went up as well and all of a sudden the value of them went down. The end result was that uh, my 30% equity um, became uh, zero equity, 100% loan-to-value ratio, and the bank said sell. They didn't foreclose on me like they did on others because I was keeping up the mortgage payments. And so the bank said sell, and I said, who to? No one was buying properties then. They were well leased. Um, but it, it showed me that you've got to have money aside for a rainy day buffer and how quickly the finance, the world of finance and markets could turn. Fortunately, we worked our way through this and uh, the cash flow got me through, but uh, I've uh, become much more cautious. Uh, could have happened earlier, uh, but we were driven by an early cycle in the early 80s. The late 80s were, was an amazing boom where you could almost do nothing wrong. Uh, I should have just held on to the land and not done development, and the value of the land went up enough to uh, have uh, made the, the profit. Didn't have to do anything in the meantime. 
<laughs> I'm smiling along because we've had periods like that in Melbourne in the last couple of years. I'm thinking of my own last project. <laughs> if we just sat on it and sold the land, yeah. we probably would have made more than uh, what we did <laughs> just developing it up. But I wanted to be busy. It was, it was exciting times. We were, we were being pretty brave. Uh, and uh, I guess there was the courage of being with a group of other people. One was an architect, one was a big city developer, one was a, a solicitor. So it was fun times. Got through. And are you still doing a mix of residential, commercial, industrial? Or is it I own a, a portfolio of a mixture of all of those, but my only developments I'm currently doing are residential for myself and our project management for clients, where we, again, only encourage them to keep, not to sell, is, is residential. Uh, it's the wrong stage of the cycle to do commercial because we're in a very low interest rate environment and this too shall pass. And I learned that lesson uh, 27 years, 30 years ago where uh, don't do things at the stage of the cycle that a cyclical like commercial is um, when you can get caught with rising interest rates. And is there any particular product type that you tend to focus on with these projects? Well, yes, fortunately, the latest census has actually confirmed I was right, uh, but I wasn't that smart. Basically, we're doing townhouse developments and basically what some people would call duplexes, two, one next to each other. So while I'm currently involved in four for myself, and some people would say, well, why don't you do one block of eight? It's easy to get finance for two. The banks are happier for you to do two. It's the preferred style of accommodation. And while I said the census confirmed I'm right, later census showed that the percentage of people living in townhouses has increased considerably over the last five-year period. What it means is that um, more people still want to be attached to their land but are happy to live in modern accommodation on compact blocks of land. But I still am very careful with the locations we're doing it in for myself personally and clients. So location does probably 80% of the heavy lifting of the property market and uh, the right product, the right property in that location does about 20% of it. So four bedroom, two storey, single or double garage side by side in uh, the affluent, more affluent suburbs like in Melbourne, the the city of... uh, Glen Ira, the city of Bayside, um, in particular at the moment, I see we did a lot of city of Monash, Burundara, Stonington in the past, but it's a bit hard with the council regulations there now. But the concept is where people can afford to and be prepared to pay to live there. So they're affordable not because they're cheap, they're affordable because the locals want to buy similar ones to what we're building to live in. I'm glad you raised that point about council regulations <laughs> because we have a growing population across the city. Uh, this is in Melbourne, and Melbourne, I think, is experiencing growing pains mm. and seems to be getting harder to build good, compact developments, mm. whether that's a three- or a four-unit project on a 1,000-square-metre block or whatever sure. it is. Good, good product, but it seems to be getting harder and harder to be able to do that. What's your view on that? Well, there are municipalities where it's really easy to get a development approval. If it's really easy, it doesn't add a lot of value. So I'm not uncomfortable going to VCAT to fight uh, or to uh, push the limits a bit because uh, if it's easy to get, as I said, if anyone can do it, like there are in some of the outer suburbs, doesn't add much value. And similarly in the outer suburbs, 
you don't have the elasticity of price. In the more affluent suburbs, you can add more value and some people will be prepared to pay for it. But if you're in the cheaper outer suburbs, you're capped by what the market would pay. Yeah, because I just think there's a real opportunity for some good high-quality terrace-style product that would fit in in a lot of different areas across Melbourne, but it's very hard to, to get it in. 100% right, because the baby boomers don't really want to go to seat change or tree change. They actually very much would like to live in modern accommodation with smaller, without the backyards, in pre- preference single storey. Um, but it doesn't matter if it's an apartment, a big apartment, single storey, in a smaller sort of complex. So they can still go to the same doctor, the same hairdresser, the same dentist in the same location where their grandkids are or whatever. But we're not building those because it's not currently either financially viable or the councils are just making it too hard. Yeah, well, that's how I see things. And it just seems odd that the state government is demanding garden spaces and council regulations and overlay it, making it harder to get good, good mid-density stuff. Well, if you talk about Victoria, that's the only market I know well with developments, the inner city or close to the city, they're encouraging it. The outer suburbs, they are. But in the middle ring suburbs, there really hasn't been... A, the same proportion of development as in those inner and far outer suburbs because it's the, the NIMBYs, you know, not in my backyard. or uh, uh, And so uh, there is an undersupply of the right sort of product there, a huge potential demand for it. Um, and that's where it's got to eventually happen. And where it's happening currently, as you know, is on the main roads or on the transport hubs or places. And I can understand from town planning reasons why they're recommending that. That's actually not where people want to live. No, no one wants to live on a, on a busy intersection, no. do they, Michael? No. No matter no. how nice the apartment might be. No. Cool. All right, well, let's move on because <coughs> we'll sit here all day talking about <coughs> council regulations and planning mm. issues. What other things do you continue to focus on now? You mentioned location, obviously, is important. And are there other things that you focus on in the developing process or when you're looking at sites? Well, I guess you start with a big picture. What's the end game? What are you trying to do? And for me personally, I'm in a very fortunate position that I'm now financially independent. Uh, so, But I'm still having fun doing developments. When we recommend it to clients, the commonest request we have here at Metropole and our offices in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane is I want to be a property developer because they know we do that. Having said that, it doesn't suit most people. They either don't have the money or they don't have the headspace for it by that I mean they're, not, they're beginners and they have unrealistic expectations because they read in the magazines, oh, you can buy seven properties in seven minutes or ten properties in ten years or come to my weekend seminar and go home and you can give up your job and be a property developer. So uh, what we teach them is to start small, buy an investment, do a renovation, learn about va- vacancies and problems and finance and challenges before you become a developer. But for those who've done that and have got the financial capacity, we love getting involved in development projects and helping them do that. But again, it's with the big picture of finding what we call investment-grade properties. So suburbs that are going to outperform the averages because of the demographics. Capital cities is where the vast majority of the population growth is occurring. Melbourne and Sydney in particular is where the vast majority is growing because it's where the workers are, the jobs are. We're currently not doing developments in Sydney. 
uh, we are in, in, in Melbourne. So then we choose those suburbs that are going to outperform the averages because it's not a, a judge of people, but because they're more affluent and, as I said a moment ago, are going to be able to have high disposable income. In the last census period, some suburbs had 50% more growth in income than the average. And those suburbs where income is growing disproportionately more, people have more disposable income. They can afford to buy cars, they can afford to buy TVs, but also spend it on their houses. And that's areas where property values will outperform. Then we choose the right livable streets. So it's not just not the main roads like we said a moment ago, but also even digging deeper to understanding why one side of the street, talking about aspect, very important with development, um, uh, also just a nice livable street, and then the right product that the locals are going to want. So we built an owner-occupier demand, even though we keep them personally and for clients as investments, because I want a valuer to come around and say, hey, if ever we were to have to take that over, the bank with my client we would take it over, we could sell it straight away. So we build owner-occupier standard, even though it's for investment. I'm very curious on uh, fleshing out the mindset of wannabe developers that you've talked to and you said their mindset isn't right. What, what kind of things is unrealistic, it you think they thinking about? Unrealistic expectations. Uh, you know, I've saved $20,000. I'll actually buy something. Uh, the bank will lend me the rest and I'll sell it and I'll make money and it'll give me money to do the next one. It's things that they're, I guess, reading between the lines in the magazines or uh, podcasts or the, the emails they get every every day in the inbox encouraging them. Happens at, every, at this stage of the cycle... Uh, where a whole lot of new um, gurus come out, pretend gurus. I mean, one of the big ones is uh, in, in this field of development is the, the land option, where they're actually going to go off and I'll, I'll, I'll buy something in, in regional or rural Australia and I'll take an option and we'll subdivide it and one scheme after the other has fallen flat and people have been uh, in, in front of the courts and ASIC, yet it's still going on. People are lured by the uh, get-rich-quick. Having said that, when I was young, so was I. I didn't have the emails in my inbox, but I got taken by a scam when I was young too. It happens to all of us. No, it happens to the greedy ones of us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what scam did you fall for, Michael? I invested in a gold mine. Somebody's good. How could that go wrong? Because the guy pinched, uh, one of my good friends invested a sum of money in a gold mine and this guy was going to reignite a gold mine in Wedderburn near Ballarat and it was called Asian Pacific Mining Corporation. Very impressive. And I said to my mate, Brian, don't be stupid. Why would he need your money? But he'd actually gathered money from a number of people. Um, and uh, Brian said, just let him come to you. So he came to me, sat in my lounge room, my dining room table, and he pulled a nugget of gold out of his pocket and he said, this could be yours. I soon learned that all the glisters isn't gold. <laughs> and it sucked me in and I lost, look, it was probably only $5,000 but this was in the 70s or 80s, which probably is the equivalent of 100,000 today, but it hurt my ego as well because I thought I was smart. And I told Brian, don't do it, and I still did it. So the answer is uh, I, I learned 
to investigate more carefully that all the listeners isn't. So it was a great lesson. It was a, 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 a at the time an emotional and expensive lesson, but uh, I was young and I've, I've made all the mistakes. Unfortunately, I've got through. So I guess what I'm now doing is uh, sharing that. That's what people are paying for our expertise uh, to stop them making the mistakes as development project managers. So we take a nice fee for doing it. But having said that, uh, if at the end result the clients end up with a project product that works and we find the site, the biggest difficulty at the moment is finding sites that are financially feasible. So lots of properties everyone can live in. Many of them are good investments, but that doesn't make them potential development sites because of covenants, overlays, easements, trees are the big issue, council uh, under-the-counter policies, all those things that beginning investors don't know. Well, don't get me started on trees, Michael. It's one yeah. of my bugbears that you can yeah, buy can a block of land and spend however much, millions of dollars, and you don't own the trees. <laughs> Not just yours. It's the ones on the block next door with the tree root protection zone. <laughs> anyway, and what do you focus on through the developing process now to ensure that things don't go off track with all that experience? I don't do anything. <laughs> I'm at the point where I've got a company with offices in three states and 50 employees, so I conduct the orchestra. For many years, my business partner in the project side was Gavin Taylor, who was an architect by degree, so he was very highly qualified and had had an MBA in property finance and, and, and interestingly, had worked on much, much bigger developments. Um, over the last six years, my son Bryce, who went to RMIT, he did a project management course, has been working there, and he now runs the project side and looks after my developments too. And we've got a team of project managers who, who do that. So... Um, he, even in the last years, found the sites for me and uh, done the negotiation. So I'm actually having fun sitting back a bit and uh, seeing the end result. So as the conductor of the orchestra, though, you'd be... Which, which members of the band are you making sure are uh, on song, as it were? Well, we have a number of divisions in our business. So I, we have Metropole Wealth Advisory, which is a financial planning business. We've got the buyer's agency and the property strategist to see the clients who um, devise a strategy, the buyer's agents who buy properties for them, property management. We've got over $1.5 billion worth of assets under property management in our offices. So it's a very big company. Um, I have fun doing the marketing. I have fun doing the research. I have fun doing the podcasts and dealing with the media, uh, writing a, a, a lot. So some of the things I do are strategic and other things, I'm now in the position that I can actually do the bits I want. I work from home one day a week. We take two good long holidays a year. So I've finally, over the last five, six years now, got a good blend of, I'm not going to give it up because I'm enjoying it. When I stop, it's interesting. I just realized a few times I said I'm having fun doing this and fun doing that. That's why I'm doing it. Well, it's always nice to meet someone who enjoys what they do. I haven't uh, felt like I haven't worked a day for a couple of years now, <laughs> even right. though I've been very busy doing mm. lots of different things. But on your projects or on the, the projects that, mm. that your company is working on, do you have a set team in terms of consultants that you continue to use over and over again? You've got sure. So we do some things in-house and we do some things out-house. So in-house, we find the sites, do the feasibilities, do the negotiation, and that's what Bryce has become good at. Interestingly, 71% of the properties we bought last year, we buy three, four a month development sites. 
were bought off market. Not And in the municipalities where there's 100% auction clearance rate, but because the agents know we're doing this, we get offered them early in the piece. Uh, our biggest competition for these development sites tends not to be developers because we're buying old houses close to the use-by date in good locations, so it's often emotional owner-occupiers who are going to pull it down and build a house. And I like that because if there are only townhouses, duplexes in these areas, it would spoil the amenity of the area. So the fact that there's nice new houses, older established houses, renovated houses and townhouses in the localities is nice. Um, we outsource the uh, design to the same firm of town planners, sorry, the same firm of architects, actually both draftspeople that I've been using since middle 90s, uh, interestingly. We now have a town planner doing every submission for council. That wasn't the way before. I was able to, when I first started, just take them to council and waltz in, and they knew you, and it was much easier. Um, we do the design and documentation, sorry, the documentation in-house with our project managers, people who've worked for some very big builders. Um, by the way, I've also got a construction company that does my own stuff, my own developments, and also does renovations, but we don't do construction for developments for clients because if we're going to project manage them, in my mind it's a bit incestuous to project manage your own construction company. The project managers then source out the construction to a group of three builders that we use a lot, um, and uh, they, they, they quote, they never know which, which job they're going to get and they're not going to get. So we have in-house team and outside team. And when you say you've got your own construction arm, um, it's a, a bit more about that. Well, Greg, my business partner, that's a registered builder. He's uh, Metropolitan Constructions. Uh, he's been my business partner for over 10 years in that. Uh, I did 70 renovations last year uh, for clients. It's doing my own current uh, reno- uh, development, uh, townhouse developments. Uh, Greg's done a lot of townhouses for himself and, and clients in the, in the past. So it's mainly involved in the renovations and maintenance for our property management division and doing some townhouses for me and for close family members and associates. And you've been around for a while, so you've probably seen a few developers come and go. Mm. Is there anything common that you've seen in their failures or their downfalls or mistakes that they've made along the way? If you're talking about experienced developers, the trouble is that they're doing it for cash flow. They're doing it to keep building. They're doing it to keep their teams busy. They're doing it to be active themselves. And so when they go broke eventually, they say, gee, if all I did was keep that first development I did 20 years ago, look what it would be worth today. So often they start small, they get bigger, bigger has potentially more risks. It's a good idea at the time, but the market has changed. Uh, but they oh, just get one more in before the end of the the cycle. Uh, I've got to keep my team together. I've got to keep people busy. That's not a good reason to develop. Anything else? Oh, there's lots of mistakes that developers make, but that's that's the big one. And they don't think like business people. They're builders. So builders make terrible developers. <laughs> well, they, they think it's easy, don't they? It's a sort of natural extension of the job that they're doing. Mm. What about preparing for a change in a market cycle? Well, that's one of the reasons I like the smaller projects I'm doing. The time frames are less, even though it still takes time to get a two-unit, two-towns development through council. Um, but I'm 
land banking. So I bought the, the sites. I'm currently one's under construction. One I finished last Christmas that uh, kept us long term investment. So one's under construction. There are three at various stages going through. Two have got the town planning approvals. Another one um, uh, is about to get the development approval through council. Uh, as soon as I finish one, I go to the next one. I'm not going to get caught out. I'm not going to have a lot on the go at the one time. Uh, worst comes to worst, I've bought the worst house in the best street and it's, the land's gone up and done really well for me at the moment anyway. So with the banks being a little bit more difficult at the moment, for people who've got large portfolios, which fortunately I have, they're checking finance based on your whole portfolio and saying, hey, you actually got to be able to pay 8% interest on all your investments, even though you're only paying 45 or 5% today. So uh, fortunately, I'm in the position that it hasn't held me back, but I'm just being cautious. I'll never have too much going on at the one time. I don't want to backtrack, but I'm just curious. Why do you think it's taking council so long to approve fairly, even fairly straightforward duplex? I think that council town planners are overworked. So they're good people. Some of them are greenies and some of them are not commercially oriented or minded. But I think in general they just haven't got enough capacity. Uh, The councils are are making it much harder for them uh, because they're not giving them the resources they need. And yet we keep paying higher and higher application fees, Michael. Yes, yes. I think you've already touched on how you go about determining the stock that you're going to build. Is that based on some research of the local buyers or the environment? Uh, we, by becoming experts in a number of municipalities, we know what works and doesn't work. Now, interestingly, two years ago we bought a development site for a client who's bought a number of other investments for us, and he didn't give it to us to project manage. He gave it to his family members who are in a, a very well-known large construction company in this area who specialises in duplexes on your own land. So you'd think they'd know what to do. Because we're good clients, uh, he's a good client of ours, he gave it back to us for property management. And it was fascinating to see the difference in the quality of that builder's product and ours. And the fact that the space in the kitchen of a luxurious townhouse in Bentley, Ormond, I should say, um, didn't have room for a double fridge. And every tenant who wanted to move in this expensive $1,200 a week rental property wanted a double fridge. They didn't have room in the laundry for a full-size um, a, 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 a dryer or washing machine. Property management came up with a whole list of things that had to be undone or couldn't be undone that actually made it harder. Um, they didn't have living space upstairs, so, so while they had lots of nice accommodation downstairs, it actually was a spec home, not what the market wants. So what we have learned from managing quite a lot of these, seeing what tenants want, learning what's happening in open market, is having a good perspective of what the end product is. And again, to us, the end product isn't investment stock, it's investment grade, which is very different. And to me, investment grade is an owner-occupier standard. Because investment grade ones allowed to perform the averages, as opposed to investment stock, what all the, the developers do for the investor market, secondary. 
and what's, what are the things are you looking for in investment grade versus investment stock? Well, investment grade starts with location and then starts with the sort of property that's going to have owner-occupier appeal and uh, will be in continuous strong demand by a wide demographic of people in the long term. Okay. And remember, as I said before, the demographic of people who can afford to and pay, be prepared to pay a premium to either rent there or buy similar properties to push up the value. And when, you, and when you're project, project managing these for your clients, what are the kind of things that they like to be kept informed about? What are the things they think are important? Well, they get regular follow-ups. They get regular reviews of what's happening with the site. A large percentage of our clients are interstate or overseas. Many of them are professionals, so they don't have a chance to look. And if they do, they drive past on the weekend and it's locked up so they can't see. And they're told not to because they don't have a card to get on the site. So we send them photos and reports. And our job is to not project manage the site. The builder does that. We actually project manage the project and make sure the builder sticks to the specification. So we don't run the development, the building site. We make sure the project's working for the client. And what do you think you've learned about yourself along the way? <laughs> I, I, uh, I guess what I've learned is I can't do it all on my own. Um, I need a good team around me. When I first started, I wanted to do it all on my own for a couple of reasons. First of all, I thought I wanted to learn. That was the right way to do things. And the other was I was cheap. Uh, I, I thought you know, I'd save myself some money. Um, but... As I learned to get other good people around me and get advice uh, and get consultants and get mentors, um, I found good advice isn't cheap, it's, uh, isn't expensive, it's actually an investment. Anything else you've learned about yourself along the way? I'm not as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> I've, made, I've made more than my share of mistakes over time. Fortunately, I've made less. I've made them in my personal life made them in my business life. I've even made business mistakes this year. Um, and I've made them in my investment career, but not many in the last 10, 15 years. So I've got to learn that uh, to, to learn from others and be humble and continuously keep learning. I learned, I think, the concept of personal development was a big aha for me and also uh, the concept of the psychology of success, that uh, there's a Reason the rich keep getting richer, and it's not because how they were born or where they went to school or what their parents did. Um, it's the, having the right headspace. They have a different wealth operating system. Their their mind works differently. But you know what? You can learn it. You can become it because most self-made millionaires start poor. That's very good advice. And what do you reckon you've sacrificed along the way, or have had to give up to get where you are? I have not had a very balanced life if you look at it day to day or week to week, but I've really tried hard to have a balance over a couple of months or over a year. So I still take very good uh, long vacations at the moment, but I'm a workaholic and I enjoy it. I get up early and do my writing. I'll, uh, at night time after watching TV with my wife, uh, spend a bit of time on the computer. But then we have long breaks together. We have our uh, set times when I've always done it with my children. Uh, still today, Wednesday afternoon, uh, I work from home on Wednesday in the afternoon to catch up with lunch with my kids on uh, some of my, my boys on 
at lunchtime, in the afternoon with my daughters and the grandchildren. I've actually learned to make appointment times for those things that are important because I think for the first half of my life, I, I was chasing money for all the wrong reasons. I came from a very poor background. and I thought it would make me happy. It didn't. I had to find a good use for it, a good purpose for it. Um, can, I've got these visions of you sitting on the couch with your wife watching renovation shows. And no, with your little t- we don't checklist. watch the block. We don't watch the renovation shows. We don't watch reality. Currently, we're watching Suits. Um, before, great TV drama. Before that, we watched um, uh, the, the Blacklist. So, no, we, 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 I, I, I don't watch any of those shows. I tell the only thing watch I watch on the block is the, the end won the auction just to see what's going on. <laughs> All right. What do you think you'd do differently if you started all over again? I'd educate myself more. I was trying to <clears throat> do things myself. And I've uh, learned to get other people around me, and particularly mentors, and pay for them. Learn from people who've already done that and achieved that. It's much easier today. When I first started out, there wasn't the internet, there weren't the books, there weren't emails, all the property books, and there weren't many from America. Um, so I had to. I should have got advice from others who were doing it earlier. Um, but uh, again, it wasn't as easy. There wasn't Facebook. There wasn't LinkedIn. It was hard to get uh, networks of people around you. Had a lot more to do with who you, with your friends were, who your parents' friends were as you grew up, who, which school you went to. I, I went to a public school uh, where. But why I got interested in real estate we came from a poor background, was my friend's parents were wealthy. They had real estate. They owned businesses. They invested. Now, this is not developing, but I got interested in real estate when I was young because my friend's parents, interestingly, were my parents' friends, were wealthy. Well, we weren't. We didn't have a car. We didn't go on Christmas holidays. My parents scrimped and saved and had never budgeted. And I thought that other people were rich because of real estate. The other group of people who impressed me were real estate agents. I remember when we bought our first chaos, they had a big car. And in those days, they were I guess we used to call them Yang Tanks. They were the American big cars. Um, and I thought the real estate agents were rich. So I thought, that's what I want to be. I didn't realize it was the people they were working for that were rich. So as a kid, uh, that, that, they were my role models, and I wanted to do that. So while other people wanted to be astronauts or firemen, I wanted to be an estate agent. Guess where I ended up? <laughs> Selling property? <laughs> well, I don't sell property because buyers agents weren't around. But last year we bought a quarter of a billion dollars worth of property for clients. We've got a huge property management division. So, yes. That's a lot of contracts to sign, in my mind. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What would you say your top tip for developers out there who are looking to take their business to the next level? I've already mentioned the concept that I think developers should not be doing it to be busy, but should be doing it to build assets. Those who develop to add value, refinance and keep are much more likely to become wealthy. Okay. That's fairly simple. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll be sure to make a note of that one. But no, it's true. I mean, I just think about my own development that we've just done and the values of that from when we started selling them off the plant of what they would be worth today. Because whoever's going to buy those is going to reap the benefit. And the property doesn't care who owns it. 
And in 10 years' time, it'll be worth double. And those who own it aren't going to have to pay capital gains tax. So the way my developments work is at the end, they're cash, more than cash flow neutral, they're a little bit cash flow positive because of the depreciation benefits and things like that. And the fact that the tenant pays the retail rent, not the wholesale rent. So a $1.5 million townhouse is costing me one point two or so or something like that. But the tenant doesn't know that. So they're building them at, uh, they're paying the full rent. So I'm buying high growth, high yield properties I get the best of both worlds. Everybody loves the best of both worlds, Michael. Mm. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. If you could sit down for dinner with any three people, alive or dead, who would they be and why? I guess the first one I'd like to sit down with would be Jim Rowan. Jim Rowan was one of my mentors, but I never met him. I still watch his videos on YouTube. I still read his quotes he was one of the people. So mentors are people you meet, mentors are people you pay for, but also you can be mentored by people who you uh, admire and aspire to be. And, and Jim Rohn taught me the concept of personal development. He taught me the concept that if you don't like things, you can change. You're not a tree. If you uh, don't change, you're not going to get to the next level. And if perchance you do get a windfall and... Uh, you haven't grown to that level, you're likely to lose it. And I sabotaged myself in the first half of my life, and I've seen people over and over again do it psychologically, emotionally, business-wise, relationship-wise, because they're sometimes scared of success, not just scared of failure. That's number one. Right. Dan Kennedy is somebody I learned a lot of marketing ideas from. The reason my Metropole business has grown so well is because we provide really good service and add a lot of value to clients. But I enjoy the marketing side, and so I've learned a lot of great ideas from him. He's still alive. He's a marketing guru who's a bit of a, an isolated person in America, but I still get his uh, newsletters. I listen to his uh, audios, uh, and I, I think uh, I could learn a lot from him. He's an entrepreneur who's uh, got some quite radical ideas. And the third person I'd sit down and have dinner with would probably be Steve Jobs. He's a visionary. Uh, I like Apple products. I've been using Apple products for a long, long time, one of the early ones to use Macs when they weren't that fashionable. Um, I like the fact that it didn't work out for him. He went off and tried things again. Um, Didn't work too well when he left Apple, but they brought him back and look what he did when he started it again. I think Steve would be at my dinner table for my three people. Mm. Maybe he's good. If I could throw a fourth one in, <laughs> I probably wouldn't mind having dinner with Donald Trump. I, at the moment, he was a really good real estate entrepreneur. He's made some successes. He's had lots of failures. Things have bitten him in the backside when he's tried things that haven't worked. And I don't particularly like what he's doing currently. But I, he probably wouldn't bother having dinner with me. But I think I'd learn some interest. I'd like to get inside his head and work out what's he thinking at the moment. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people <laughs> thinking the same thing. Yeah. I reckon it'd be pretty scary inside yeah. his head. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds like a pretty interesting group of people. Mm. Now, if people want to find out more about you or Metropole, sure. where, where should they go? Well, I have a daily blog called Property Update, and I was really excited about three months ago. I got an email out of the blue from an American aggregator of blogs called Feedspot, and they classed it as the number one property blog worldwide. 
Um, this had some very interesting international and local competition. Um, and so all the property experts uh, from Andrew Wilson from uh, Domain, the chief economist, Louis Christopher from SQM Research, Tim Rawless, a whole lot of experts, and I'm leaving out a whole lot of important names, right for property update. We have over 115,000 subscribers. So there's a daily blog at propertyupdate.com.au. Um, I also recently started my own podcast at michaeliartneypodcast.com. But the services we talked about a while ago with regard to our project management services, the buyers agency, the wealth advisory, is at metropole.com.au. Very good. Well, Michael Yardney, it's been fantastic talking to you. I'm very grateful for you taking some time out to speak to me today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for being on the Property Developer Podcast. Look forward to listening to it. All right, there you have it, folks. Another great tale of a property developer doing great things. It was exciting to hear how Michael has grown and diversified his property business over the years and decades. There was plenty of wisdom shared in that discussion, and here are a couple of things that stood out for me. 1. Can you hold on to any of your stock to help grow your asset base? As Michael said, he's seen many developers go bust without any assets to show for all their years of work. And I know it is challenging to hold stock when developing is so cash-intensive, but how often do we see the value of our finished stock jump up significantly over the short, medium and long term? I understand where Michael is coming from, and building up a foundation of solid assets that can support you later in life is certainly something worth considering. 2. Are you taking steps to continually educate yourself? I liked how Michael said mentors don't need to be people you meet face-to-face. You can find mentors in books, or via blogs, or in groups. Continually educating yourself is a great way to keep your brain active, learn new techniques, and stay ahead of the pack. So I'd encourage you to find some ways to keep evolving and learning. 3. Have you considered your long-term future? Leading on from the point about holding stock, it is helpful to consider what you want your life to be like in the longer term, and then having a plan to get there. It is wise to have a destination in mind, and then you can begin working towards it. Developing and creating value for 15, 20, 30 years, and then going bust on a project would leave you with nothing would be heartbreaking. So give some consideration to putting away 10% of your profits on each project into a super fund or other long-term investment to provide a cushion for your retirement. Okay, that's just about it for episode 36 of the show. If you enjoyed hearing about Michael's journey through property developing, you might like to go back to some past interviews with other developers, like New Zealand-based developer Graham Fan, who I spoke with in episode 29, or Brisbane-based Brendan Ansell, who this year took his developing company public. I chat with him in episode 18. Don't forget to join me on Instagram at Property Developer Podcast for my latest videos and photos. And you can find all the past episodes of the show at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening in. And until next time, may some of your stock still be with you until retirement. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.